completely different film than the one we saw uh, last week. Completely different from the films that started Cinema Ball. But man, we are taking y'all on a fantastic journey in this yes. show. And I am so glad we chose to do this. everyone welcome to episode four of cinema ball i am here with my co-host my opponent and my idol carolyn pettit hey carolyn Aww. hey ebony <laughs> uh so listen anyone listening to this podcast can tell i still have a cold i don't know what to tell you i have important things to say so i resisted the allure of my incredibly comfortable bed and the disco blue cough medicine i normally drink uh 17 times a day to come into the studio and talk to you because cinema ball is life. What is cinema ball? <laughs> it is a ridiculous excuse for Carol and I to talk about movies. And I do mean ridiculous. Carolyn's goal in the game of cinema ball is to connect one movie to another through an actor, a director, someone else involved in the film until she gets us to the 1998 Jean-Claude Van Damme film, Knock Off, which I am really desperately trying to keep us from. I am on defense this round. I want to make sure we don't have to watch the Jean-Claude Van Damme film, Knock Off, if at all possible. Last week, Carolyn shifted the cinema ball from the 2014 modern horror classic, It Follows, to the 2015 drama, Louder Than Bombs. At the end of this round, this episode, I'm going to announce our next film. But for right now, it's time to delve into the dysfunctional family drama of Louder Than Bombs. Caro, break it down for us. Tell us a little bit about this movie and why you chose it. Okay, so um, Louder Than Bombs is the first English language film from a, a very you know well-respected uh, Norwegian director named Joachim Trier. I've actually not seen any of his other films yet, but last year, 2017... He released a, a Norwegian film called Thelma, which uh, which I've heard uh, is is just exceptional, and it's definitely on my list uh, of films to watch. I just haven't gotten around to it yet. But um, it really wasn't so much the director that um, that uh, led me to, to choose this film as it, it as it was um, one of its stars, um, the Irish actor Gabriel Byrne. Um, he's just an actor that. Um, I've always uh, just loved watching on screen because I feel like he he has so much charisma, but it's a very specific kind of charisma. It's a kind of um, internal charisma. It's the kind of thing where you look at him and it just uh, it just seems like you could just get the sense that there's so much going on like inside of him that you kind of can't take your eyes off him. It's not the outward kind of uh, you know, big uh, uh, sort of ch charisma that uh, that some actors have. It's a it's a very it's a very uh, intense uh, charisma that's that seems to kind of exist within and um, just manifest in his eyes and his face. So um, you know, folks may know him as um, the uh, the the sort of Irish uh, criminal in The Usual Suspects, the one who sort of throughout the film seems like the most likely 
uh, candidate to actually be Kaiser Soze until you find out that Verbal Kent is actually Kaiser Soze. Um, also, he had an HBO series um, called uh, called uh, In Treatment. There was an HBO series called In Treatment in which every episode was basically a half-hour little therapy session with him as the therapist and you know some actor as his his client so you get so much uh, so many like just intense gabriel byrne looks and stuff in that show so even though i thought the show was really uneven at times i i still couldn't resist watching it just because of his presence and that was really the main reason that i that i chose this film was because uh, because of him and because i could i got a sense from the description that it would be a a a good uh uh opportunity for him to really work that kind of that gabriel byrne charisma and i wasn't wrong about that like the film certainly i think delivers the complexity the sort of internalized complexity that i want to see in a gabriel byrne performance yeah absolutely i'm gonna i'm gonna interrupt you real quick before i throw it back to you to give a short summary of the film yeah just you know in regards to gabriel byrne i absolutely agree with um your characterization of him he has been a really fascinating actor to watch through the years i mean the the man's almost 70 he's i think he's like 68 Mm -hmm. or something right yeah he's still very attractive um, but the the transformation of Gabriel Byrne over the past like three decades, three or four decades in film from someone, and this is actually alluded to in Louder Than Bombs when he talks about his brief career as an actor, right? And he says, you know, my agent thought my, my looks would actually hamper me from being taken seriously. Um, and I think, yeah, like I, I would... I would hesitate to suggest <laughs> that, he, that his, you know, phenomenal good looks when he was a younger man, you know, were some sort of, you know, like, um, you know, something that held him back. But I do think the magnetism that he conveys, like, you you want to look at him. You want yes. to look at him. He is a very quiet but full actor who managed uh-huh. to suggest this just profound interiority um in a way that that, that draws you in it's not overblown yes. um it's not sort of you know loud and jumping on the couchy tom cruise style charisma you know it it you very much you know like this show in treatment which i i have not seen um, but I, I wanted to watch it. I've seen tons of other Gabriel Byrne pieces. And yes, when he is on screen, you want to lean in, you mm-hmm. know, and, and exactly. listen to him more closely. And so I thought he was just an exceptional uh, choice for the role of Gene in this movie. Yes. So, so, yeah, just give us a, yeah. a quick breakdown yeah. of what the movie's about. Yeah. So, yeah, he plays a man, a widower named Gene. Um, his wife, who is played by the, uh, you know, quite legendary French actor Isabelle Huppert, uh, plays uh, and who who is sort of in many ways his equal in terms of that ability to to project this kind of intelligence and intensity um, uh, plays uh, his his deceased wife who was a war uh, photographer uh, you know a very very well respected very uh, you know important kind of war photographer uh, who didn't die um, on assignment in some you know war torn uh, country as you might suspect but rather died in a car accident uh just like a mile from the family home and um there's it's it's 
suspected by Jean and others that she uh, that it was a, that it was not an accident that she uh, com- committed suicide. Um, but uh, Jean's two sons uh, don't know this. Um, one of his sons is uh, is uh, 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 Jonah, played by Jesse Eisenberg. So he's a he's a you know young sort of college professor. He's just had a baby with his uh, young wife. Um, and uh, and then there's a young Conrad who was only 12 when the when uh, Isabel died, so he's probably around like 15 now, and is still very very troubled. Like uh, clearly is is not processing the loss of his mother uh, in a in a in a healthy way at all. He's very uh, uh, intro- he's very introverted. He's very uh, just. Uh, he plays not, video not, games, Carol. Yeah, like, that's exactly that tells us it. all you we know, need to know, right? When you, you see know someone playing Conrad video games it, on screen, yes. you know that something he's not engaging yeah. with people socially. That, yes, warnings, red red flags, warning signs. He plays video games. Um, uh, but although his his um his obsession with video games does lead to uh, some of the more one of the more interesting dialogue exchanges in the film. Um, but. Uh, so Jesse, uh, excuse me, Jonah. I want to call. I keep wanting to call Jonah Jesse because he's played by Jesse Eisenberg, and they, their names both start with J. But um, so Jonah comes up to the house. Uh, th- there's going to be a big retrospective on Isabel's work and her life printed in the in the New York Times. And there's all this all these photos that are still like in her office that haven't been sorted through. And so Jonah comes up to the house ostensibly to kind of help Jean, you know, and kind of go through that stuff and figure out what might be useful to to have in this exhibition um, that's also happening at a, at a New York gallery. But it's also clear that Jonah has his own problems. He is kind of hiding, you're sort of retreating from his wife and the baby. He's, he's kind of, you know, he's kind of using this as an excuse to kind of put a shield or some distance between him and his wife. And so it's really just a, a, a drama about the ways in which these three, you know, men, young men and boys um, are, are struggling and fumbling and failing to, uh, to greet, to move on and to kind of how the, how the loss of Isabel is, is affecting uh, each of them. Yeah, I mean, one of the... um, uh, So, just to remind people of how the sausage is made, this is actually the second time we're recording this episode because my (laughs) Boogle House ass ability to manipulate a Zoom recorder failed me uh, earlier in the week. But one of the things that we talked about um, the the first time we discussed this film is how you have a a multi-generational saga here. So you have Gabriel Byrne playing uh, Gene, the the widower. You have uh, Jesse Eisenberg playing Jonah. Um, (laughs) It it tickled me throughout the film because I just can't see this dude as anything other than like a college freshman. So to have him portraying like, albeit young, but, you know, portraying a sociology professor, a PhD with a new baby. (laughs) I was just like, who let this, who yet this young man have a child? But anyway, so you (laughs) you have this, you have this uh, young man who, let's say he's, you know, late 20s, maybe 30. And then his younger brother, who's 16. Um, and the the ways in which they grieve differently, but the how their entire lives have been shaped by 
the presence of Isabel in their lives as either a mother, a wife, you know, well, a mother of, you know, uh, a firstborn son, mother of a much younger secondborn son, or, you know, as, as the wife of Jean, right? So there's this attempt to, to capture who she was, you know, and they continually have this tension when they talk about who Isabel was. But in many ways, none of them have the true picture of who right. she was because it's, it's impossible for them to know. They are, they are talking um, about three different women when they when they uh-huh. speak about you know this singular person uh in their lives and i i love the way the movie occasionally gives us hints of this so we do see isabel in uh in flashbacks occasionally and the memories of conrad or um or gene or jesse or jonah but most often we see her um an interview she gave with charlie rose you know um, so it's her on camera, or we see images of her that she took in mirrors, right? So again, mm-hmm. it's not the person, it's a reflection of that person. It's that person yeah. captured on film. In many ways, it's kind of a simulacrum, you know, like it's a, it's a recreation of, a, of a, an identity that never, that doesn't yeah. have like an original reference. And I, I thought that was very well done because the the grief and the trauma that these men are trying to move through not move past but move through has become so overwhelming all they can do is try and hold on to the image of Isabel that they had you know and so for Jean to say well this is who I knew as my wife to have that butt up against you know uh, Jonah's idea of his mother causes some real tension and it causes really extreme um, you know, like painful interactions with his younger son, you know, right. to the point where you wonder if their relationship will ever, ever be whole. Um, I think, you know, to your point about how Isabel is, you know, a different woman through the lens of each of these men's experiences of her and with her. Um, there's a there's a really great little sequence in the film where so where is- Isabel was a photographer. And, you know, one thing that Conrad recollects at one point is uh, that Isabel once showed him how uh, you could change the meaning of a photograph by, by how you framed it. So, for instance, there's a photo of a family, like, walking toward the camera, and it just seems like a like a mother and her kids, like, walking, you know, but then the frame expands, and you see uh, what I think is like an IRA gunman just around the corner up ahead of them. And, then, you know, there's another photo of just this you know, cute young girl walking and holding, holding someone's hand, but then, and you think, ah, and then the frame expands and it's, it's, she's holding Hitler's hand. So it's very much changes the emotional uh, sort of reverberations of that image. And I think that, that, uh, that, you know, you could say that each of these three men, you know, saw Isabel through a different framing, right? The framing of their relationship with her. And so their the meanings that she had for each of them were, of course, very different. But but she was tremendously important in her own way to 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 all of them. Right. And there's also the fourth man played by David Strathern, the the reporter, yes. the colleague who is going to be writing this piece in The New York Times. Um, and it's interesting that he also has a different knowledge of Isabel because they were colleagues, you know, so um, mm-hmm. 
his his knowledge of her is not the domestic knowledge that his um, that her husband or children had, but rather someone who knew her through her chosen avocation, right? But also knew her intimately. We we learned uh-huh. that they had an affair. We have no idea how long that affair has gone on, but we know that she took it seriously enough and thought enough of it to try and keep it separate uh, from her family. So this is a part of her that Isabel wanted to keep to herself, you know? So again, this is a this is another um, part, of, this is another facet of her identity that went into creating the the whole richness of Isabel that because she is no longer with us, you know, it's just simply inaccessible to the men who are left. Yes. The, the one, well, I shouldn't say the one problem, I, I really enjoyed this film. And one of the things I told you before is that I'm glad you chose it because there's no way I would have chosen to watch this on my own. Basically, if I'm not rewatching like Eureka, Warehouse 13, or some Scandinavian crime drama, I'm reading comic books, you know? So it is rare <laughs> that I'm like, you know what? I would like to watch a quiet, thoughtful, <laughs> slow-paced, you know, kind of cinematic observation of human relations. And yet, and yet, whenever you and Anita force, in quotation marks, force me to watch something like this or call me by your name, to be, I'm always to like, be fair, yeah. To be fair, th- th- these... Like, these are very much not Anita movies either. Like, this is 100%. Like, my jam is observational, you know, human, character-driven dramas, right? That is, that is like... If you're gonna have one genre that you that you have that you know you right. have to say like that's what a Caro movie is, right? It's this genre. So oh yeah, um, I mean Anita and I are you know saving money to buy you like the complete Criterion collection, and once we do, <laughs> we know that you're never gonna leave your apartment again. But um, yeah. but I mean at least Anita, as a media critic, will acknowledge yeah. that like okay, there are you know there are movies that will bear fruit, thoughtful fruit in a discussion. Let's watch them. My reaction is always like I don't want to watch a thoughtful movie I don't want to watch a smart movie so having said that I am very yes. glad I watched this movie there were things that I absolutely uh, loved about it there were some things though that I found problematic and I know that term sure. itself gets way overused but in as much as I thought the film was doing something very smart um, about conveying to us the fact that we're, it's impossible for these men or for us as an audience to ever get a true picture of who Isabel was. Like, that is a, that is a, a futile hope. Nevertheless, I thought the movie itself, um, you know, was part of a cinematic genre in which women are inciters of action they are the ones who provoke male emotion and legitimize male emotion by their absence and yet they are rarely allowed to speak um, and deliver their own stories so you know it is very common for the death of a mother a lover you know something like that to you know provoke a male actor uh, a male subject to like a revenge drama or you know um like a, a even a teenage sex comedy like the woman who is not there the woman that uh-huh. the man cannot have um and so there was a way in which i was a little bit dissatisfied by the fact that you know isabel is this fascinating character but what we learn of her is very rarely in her own words. Yes. Um, it's it's primarily through the recollections 
of these men. And yes, we do get, you know, these interviews, like when she talks about, uh, or when she's on Charlie Rose uh, giving that interview. And those are absolutely fascinating, compelling moments when she's allowed to speak for herself, you know, and talk about why she does the things that she does, why she's not planning on stopping, why she sees no need um, to, to stop. You know, why this is not just yeah. a, a job for her, but rather something she feels called to do. Those were the moments that I was most uh, drawn in to to this movie, because, yeah, for a large part of it, I was like, OK, I get it. You know, you feel sad, Gene. You feel sad, Conrad, with your fucking 16 year old self-obsessed. No one has ever been as sad as I have been. No one has ever been as deep as I am, you know, ass. But I wanted more Isabel, but this this is not a story about her. This is a story right. about the men she's left behind. Yeah, and I mean, um, so yeah, exactly. Like, there's a sense in which she, for the story to function, she needs to remain this kind of ethereal, un, unfully knowable uh, uh, presence, right? But, but you're right. Um, I, I mean, the the one uh, there's one bit of voiceover that we get from her that I did really appreciate, which, which and I thought was quite sort of insightful. Um, where she talks about, um, you know, it, by being this kind of war photographer, the toll that that takes or the difficulty of that is that you go abroad, you're in this, you know, place, uh, this horrible, you know, where all these horrible things are happening. And, and of course, some part of you really wants to return home, um, longs to return home, but then each time you return home, you feel like an outsider because it's been a month or two months since you were home last. People are talking about, the, you know, the culture, the, 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 the things have shifted away from you. There's new films or new TV shows being discussed, new, you know, uh, things, just new developments in the family's arc, you know, its relationships. And so you, um, you know, you, you, at least she says, you know, that she feels like she's in almost in the way when she comes home because she cannot fully integrate into whatever's happening because by necessity, her work requires that she spend so much time away. And um, so I, you know, I thought that was uh, an interesting opportunity for us to kind of understand because, because Jean doesn't fully understand and gets quite angry at her for wanting to continue doing the work that she does. He, you know, accuses her of being, addicted to the you know the uh the chaos the the intensity of 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 those places but um so I, I appreciated that it gave her that chance to like articulate her feelings about it um to us the audience but I do I agree completely that and I think you know this is an example of a way in which um a story like this wouldn't uh it would be t completely fine if we existed in a more equitable, you know, sort of uh, ecosystem of films where all different kinds of stories were being told, but 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 as it stands, this is a story that does fall into a pattern that that tends to center men's experiences, men's emotions as uh, over those of women. Um, another aspect in which the film kind of. Um, you know, troubled me a little bit uh, similarly was that um, it's, you know, we see a lot of Isabel's photographs uh, throughout the film and many, and they're extraordinary photographs, um, but, and, and you know, they're photographs of, of, of people just experiencing, you know, absolute devastation and, and loss of life and, and I mean, in extreme poverty and just, just 
you know, horrible, horrible uh, living conditions. Um, and and yet, like, the film, uh, and yet, so it's a story, though, about this white, like, kind of at least, like, well-to-do or, like, you know, at least um, upper-middle-class kind of New York family. Um, and, you know, I, I uh, so it doesn't, I, I guess I wish that it engaged a bit more with what our experiences or our relationships as Westerners are, I guess, to these images that, um, you know, that, I mean, Isabel takes a photograph there and it ends up on the, the front page of the New York Times or something, but it's still, you know, kind of disposable to mm-hmm. us. We, look, we might look at it, we might have a moment of, like, uh, uh, relationship to the image in the film, but then we put it aside and we go on with our lives. And, you know, similarly, like, this film doesn't, it, it doesn't really, you know, engage with the 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 experiences of these people that Isabel photographs, right? That, um, yeah. It, yeah. So yeah, yeah I, I, th- mean, I I totally agree. I think you know there isn't enough of there isn't enough of a conversation about um, larger issues of how uh, Western journalism gets married with cultural anthropology and grief tourism, um, such that the people that uh, that Isabel has been photographing are being photographed in moments of profound upset, you know, whether that's someone, you know, recently being shot or a family grieving over a lost child. She is there taking pictures, testifying, witnessing, which is itself a very important uh, human activity. But nevertheless, as an outsider, her presence there. Um, is intrusive in a way that her family never has to deal with after her loss. So you have these, you know, brown families um, in, you know, like uh, Syria, what's one of the places that she's mentioned as being, you know, uh, and this very just heartbreaking, intimate moment where they're preparing a young boy's body for burial. She's capturing that moment. There is no analog to have an outsider at her f- watching her family deal right. with her death, you know? So there's a there's a way in which like, you know, the the grief and the trauma of others is a commodity that needs to be witnessed by white people for it to be real. And and the people who are being photographed, the subjects of those pieces, uh, never have to give their their permission, you know? It's it's that autonomy is is kind of taken away from them. And there's this, you know, way in which Westerners kind of assume like, oh, uh, if we if we see it, if we show the world what's going on, it will become real to them. You think about the arrogance of that statement and that impetus, you know, like I need to see you bleed. I need to see you in pain before I will recognize yeah. that it has actually occurred. So, yeah, there's a yeah. there's a kind of fucked up. Yeah. Well, not even kind of there's a fucked up economy to a lot of this that yeah. doesn't necessarily um, get discussed and, in a way that it would have been. Yeah, it would have been nice. And. And it's another one of those cases where, you know, if we had, again, if we had films, you know, that uh, for, I mean, obviously these films exist in the, in the global cinema landscape, but they don't get much exposure or attention here. You know, if we, if we were exposed as Western audiences to a, a lot of films that told the stories of those people and that really, you know, humanized their lives and their experiences for us, I wouldn't so much have a problem with one film that 
focuses more on the grief of mm-hmm. a white, like, you know, because because obviously the experiences and the grief of this family are valid too, yeah, right? Yeah. But it's just, it's just that, it's just that it, it, it sort of illuminates the, the imbalance, right? Mm-hmm. By, by having these scenes of devastation and grief in place, places like Syria, but then shifting, the fo- but then focusing entirely on the grief of this, you know, this white New York family. It's like, oh, right. You know, we, as we are not encouraged or inclined very often to, to really uh, know or identify with or project ourselves onto the experiences of, of those people. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so, so yeah. Yeah. Um, I, one thing, you know, that I've, I've been thinking about since watching this film is I do wonder how the film would necessarily have been different um, if it were gender flipped. So mm. if Isabel were a male war photographer who had died um, and the people that we were watching were, you know, um, the widow and, and two children, you know, and, and what that would have looked like. I think there probably would have been more focus on the um, the the main character who had died. Let's just say Jean in this hypothetical situation. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. there would have been more uh, emphasis on the heroism and the bravery yes. of that person yes. going into yes. these war zones, right? And that's right. that's something that's largely missing. I think uh, in a in a good way, you know. Like I don't want to hear about you know the bravery of you know these white people who go into these war torn regions to to shoot photographs. Um, sure. But I also do wonder, particularly about how the character of Conrad would be different if it were a 16-year-old girl um, and how we would understand that character. I found myself making, at the same time that I absolutely wanted to like squeeze Conrad's fucking head because he was just... I get it. I get it. Like at 16 is such a hard age. It is such Mm -hmm. a hard age. Like you're, you're going through so much and trying to figure out so much at a time when the, the world just seems so incredibly cruel, you know? And if you're not someone who's at the the top of the social hierarchy, which Conrad clearly isn't, you don't have a lot of grace period to make fuck ups, you know, in front of others. But I do think that, you know, we probably, we definitely um, permit, like, if there's anyone who's going to be just, like, a straight-up asshole, the the person we're most likely to give permission to do that is going to be, like, a straight, white, young yeah. man who is upset about something, right? Yeah. So there's a joke, and it's, it's funny, but it's also kind of horrifying when uh, Jonah is watching Conrad play video games, and I can't remember what Conrad says, but Jonah says, like, you're not going to go shoot up a school, are you? And it's meant to be a kind of funny moment, right? But I'm thinking, yeah. if the situations were reversed, and if this was a 16-year-old girl, that wouldn't even be an issue, right? Like, that wouldn't even be a joke that would be right. made. Because I think the assumption would be, the reality would be, that a young girl dealing with this kind of trauma would necessarily turn that hurt inward versus yes. outward. You know, right, right, and so I think right. you know. I'm I'm not saying yeah. that this this movie needs to be you know gender flipped to be better or anything, but I do think it would be interesting no. to note like how this would yeah. play out differently. I also think there would be less emphasis on um like the the sexual 
needs of the widow, you know, after the death of her partner. I think in a lot of ways, like after a woman is divorced or, you know, loses a spouse, straight women, you know, it's just kind of assumed like, oh, she may be single forever. She may never have sex again in a way that like women or with men. It's like, oh, no, if it's a straight dude and he loses his partner, he's going to need to have sex again. That's just natural. You know, yeah, uh, of course, yeah. he's going to find another partner. And there's nothing wrong with that, you know, but no, I do and, think it would be and, different for a woman. And to be fair, like I. I so so Jean in the film has a relationship with uh, with. Unfortunately, with Conrad's English teacher, whose yeah. name is Hannah, played by played by Amy Ryan, herself a very, very sort of accomplished and mm-hmm. uh, fine actor. And, like, uh, I didn't, I mean, to me that was as much about emotional, uh, an, an emotional need for connection and someone to talk to and be close with as it was for, for you know, anything sexual, at least to me, like, it seemed like... I didn't get the sense that it was just all about sex. So, no, I didn't know. think not that particular no. episode. But when he's with her the first time, he says, "This is the first time that I've had sex, really." Mm-hmm. You know, because mm-hmm. he's tried before. Um, no, and right, this, and he was this, too this, uptight. This, yeah. yeah, so this may be. The, in fact, it is probably my inner, uh, you know, moral finger wagger being like, "All right, you died. <laughs> your wife died two years ago." Uh, yeah. So you know, you're just now hooking up with Hannah. That's totally fine. But like, when did these other you know, dalliances. When did you attempt to do those? Just like, you know, let it sit a bit, dude. Yeah, <laughs> just yeah, yeah. Let it sit yeah. a bit. But this is yeah. me policing someone else's grief process, which you should never, ever, ever, ever do. So I, to pretend you didn't hear that, podcast listeners. <laughs> um. So, yeah, but let's, you know, let's, I think, so, you know, at a certain point in the film, Conrad is very, very upset, I guess, understandably, when he learns that, that Jean and Hannah have been having a relationship. Um, but, you know, and Jean, like, apologizes. He's like, I was, it was wrong of me, uh, you know. But I, I guess I, I wasn't clear if he was apologizing just for having a relationship with any woman or for having a relationship with his English teacher in particular because mm-hmm. I don't see anything, like, anything morally wrong or objectionable yeah. about yeah. Jean having a relationship with a woman, like, mm-hmm. through some three years after his his wife right. has died. Right. Um, yeah. I, so let's talk a bit about how Conrad is, is processing the grief uh, or not processing it. I think that the mm-hmm. film, to me, the film is simultaneously too hard and too easy on Conrad in Agreed. some ways. Definitely. Like, um, like uh, you know, there's a scene where he's just totally rocking out in his room and yeah. just listening to music, uh, like, alone and really, like, physically just dancing like wild you know but and then jonah happens to like come come upon him and just like kind of to me mercilessly is like laughing and telling yeah. keeps telling conrad like that was really weird right I mean, that was funny it was funny but it was weird and i'm like you know it's i don't think it's that weird like you yeah. know at least i mean i've certainly rocked out to in in my in the privacy of my own home at times you know or let off yeah let off some emotional steam by just cranking up some music and like dancing mm-hmm. around or whatever. Um, so, you know, I, I have a lot of sympathy for that kind of awkwardness and yeah. uh, on Conrad's part. Um, but the, another thing Conrad does, so Conrad is obsessed with this, uh, this girl in his classes um, who he doesn't know at all as a person. He's never like interacted mm-hmm. with her. She's of a different 
uh, Strata, you know, she's much in the much like cooler kids uh, uh, realm, and she probably wouldn't really give him the time of day or even barely notice that he exists. Mm-hmm. Um, and but yet he writes her this like extremely, oh. extremely honest, like I think like multiple pages of just like facts and like observations and like, it is like excruciating. The, his, inner, his innermost like his innermost yeah. thoughts and um and uh jonah like sort of you know uh, to his credit although i don't think he he phrases it uh in the best way advises mm-hmm. conrad against um get, is it melanie the girl's yeah, name melanie. Or, uh-huh. advises um conrad against you know <laughs> giving melanie this uh this this these documents but um but nonetheless conrad um he goes to her house he knocks on the door her dad answers uh and he asks like is melanie there and uh, as melanie is like gonna come down the stairs conrad like just puts puts it down and runs away right Mm -hmm. because that's how painfully shy he is and yet he's literally like bearing his soul to her in in these documents so to be clear like here's the level of 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 honesty that's oh my god (laughs) like one of the one of the lines is one of the lines that we hear from the document is like something like the most times i've jacked off in one day seven like it's those kinds of like (laughs) those kinds of like uh facts and yeah like there's there's no there's nothing edited out it is yeah yeah and 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 like so and again, I have so much sympathy for the awkward kid who can't muster up the courage to talk to the person that they are interested in or whatever. I have I have been there 100%. But where the film goes with this like like that that is an ex- that I think would be an extremely kind of alarming and yeah. freaky thing for a person to receive. It would kind of set off alarm bells. It's certainly not how you go about laying the basis for any kind of like healthy interaction or Mm -hmm. relationship. Right. You know, I mean, obviously you want to get to a point where you, where you know each other well, but you don't do it by having one person just emotionally vomit. Yeah, exactly. That's not, that's not the, the path to getting there. And so, um, and yet instead of Melanie kind of flipping out or like keeping her distance and being on guard uh, around Conrad, they end up at the same party and they and Conrad ends up like walking her home from the party and they kind of have this nice, you know, stroll, this nice night together. And Melanie, you know, Melanie apparently says like, oh, let's have lunch on Tuesday or something. And Conrad in his head knows that that's never going to happen, that, you know, this night with her is like all that he gets probably. And yet it's still like this nice thing that they shared. And I just, you know. I, I guess I just I wasn't happy with the fact that it, it was sort of in the end treated almost as this like sweet romantic gesture. Right. On con- because so often that happens in movies where these things men do that should be kind of, you know, scary or inappropriate, you know, or whatever mm-hmm. are framed as as like romantic or sweet. Yeah. yeah it's, um, it's incumbent upon the female object of affection yeah. to see past any, you know, inappropriate um, contours to the grand romantic gesture and see the inner truth of the man within, you know, which is right. both completely unfair uh, for the woman, but also the gesture itself, as you say, is completely inappropriate. Like all Melanie knows of Conrad, if she knows anything, 
is that this is someone who's in, you know, one of her classes. And if she's been paying attention and has seen the dude follows her around town, you know, watches her when she's at cheerleading practice, like all she could know of him is that he's kind of stalkery. In fact, it's not even kind of stalkery. He straight up stalks her. So the fact that she, uh, to, to demonstrate that she uh, is a sweet person, um, you know, to, to demonstrate that fact, the fact that she then is, if not receptive, at least not, you know, repulsed by this, uh, this gesture that he's made. Yeah, it, it's fucked up. And it's a, it's a really gross message that consistently is told right. to, to women and men that, you know, what's important is not who you are and what you want. The most important thing is I, the dude, am obsessed with you and I need you to deal with that fact and be okay yeah. with it. Yeah, and meanwhile, uh, we have Jonah, who, you know, obviously, for whatever reason, not wanting to face the responsibilities or, or anything associated with uh, his his wife, his marriage, his his newborn baby, right? He is keeping, he's going to kind of great lengths to not engage with that, not deal with that. And one night, he, um, he's... He actually stops by the home of an ex, um, and, uh, you know, they're talking, and he, you know, he kind of uses some sort of, like, manipulative language, like, yeah, you know, just like, I have a lot going on right now, actually, which is definitely this kind of, you know, coded language for, like, I, I you know, can, yeah. kind of, can I stay here with you tonight sort right, of thing. Right, right. Um, <laughs> which he does, you know, um, and... Uh, but I mean, yeah, like I, I appreciate that people in grieving situations will, you know, will make sort of inappropriate or unhealthy decisions sometimes, right? And that's, I and and I like that the film is just kind of observant about that. That, um, but I do think again, there's a tendency for us to be a little more a tendency as viewers because we've been trained to be this way by by movies to be more forgiving and understanding of a male character doing that sort of thing than we would of a, a female character doing that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think that's unfortunate. Um, although, but I, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I do. I think that um, there's a, there's a sense in which, uh, as I said, the, these men are only able to access certain levels of emotional depth through their relationships to women, through their interactions with women. And one of the things that I found really interesting was, um, so as we said, Conrad, you know, plays video games, and that's meant to demonstrate, you know, that he's um, kind of unplugged from the world around him and instead chosen to um, to invest himself more more deeply in these fictional, you know, fantastical yeah. realms, right? And there's a there's a moment when, you know, his father is like, you know, I wanted to try and interact with him. So I spent all this time in, you know, this game. He's playing Elder Scrolls, constructing my character. And um, <laughs> there's this very funny moment where he spends hours doing that. And when he finally comes across Conrad in the game, Conrad, without a word, without interacting with him, just cuts him down. Yeah. You know, so yeah. it's this very funny thing. But Conrad in that moment is playing as a sorceress. Right. And so I thought there was something very interesting um, about the the times that he plays as a female character 
But also, there's a uh, a moment in the school when he's in his English class uh, with Hannah, the the teacher that his father is stooping, um, and his voiceover is Melanie's voice. So she's oh, right. she's she's reading. Um, something, but we're supposed to, you know, understand it as Conrad kind of repeating these things to himself, um, you know, expressing these same thoughts about like moments of time replaying over and over again. Um, something about like, you know, the seconds after seconds, et cetera. But it's a, it's a woman's voice, you know? And so I thought that was very interesting that, you know, I'm still unpacking how I'm reading that moment. Um, but again, I do think this is part of this kind of long, um, you know, fictive tradition of men not knowing how to express themselves unless it's through interactions with women or taking on what they assume to be a more feminine capability to process things emotionally. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um yeah, you know, and, and I mean, so this is a film, you know, in terms of its its story, like, I, I, I feel like it's an unspoilable film. Like, you yeah. can't sort of tell tell people, you know, the beginning, the middle, and the end of the story and, and have them have a, like, lesser experience with the film because it's not really about what mm-hmm. happens throughout the film. It's about observing the characters in those situations and in those moments. So, you know, uh, I, I definitely appreciate that it is a film that doesn't end with any kind of uh, uh, neat, tidy resolutions, right? These characters are all, I mean, they may make some progress. Certainly by the end, we get the sense that Conrad and Jean have have so, have somehow kind of broken down maybe one of the walls that was standing in between them and are now in a place where they, where, you know, Conrad realizes that he needs to be or wants to be a little more communicative and uh, with his father. Um and yet, you know, they're they're all still uh, kind of. Uh, I don't want to say broken, but they're they're all still, you know, I mean, damaged people. I mean, in the sense that that most of us are damaged to one degree or another, right? And we carry that damage with us through our lives, and we just we um, we make we we carry it as well as we can in a way that will allow us to con- to live and to function and to and to have meaningful lives. So, you know, I, 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 I tend to like films where, yeah, where, where it's, where they're sort of honest about life in that way and don't try to, to, um, affix a, a, a kind of overly neat resolution onto, onto circumstances that, that seem authentic, you know? Yeah. Wow. I, I a completely different film than the one we saw uh last week. Completely different from the films that started Cinema Ball, but man, we are taking y'all on a fantastic journey in this yes. show. And I am so glad we chose to do this. Let us finish up this episode, Carol, by uh letting yes. the listeners in on our Furious Five or our Fab Five. So just as a reminder for people, this is where we do a speed round of things that we loved or hated about the film for whatever reason. You don't got to defend it. You just got to lay it out there. So, Karis, run us down your list first. Uh, all right. My 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 mostly my fab five for this film. Easy. This film scores easy points. 
uh, with Gabriel Byrne's eyes, you know, uh, just mm-hmm. just how anytime, you know, he's on screen basically, and I can just like look into those eyes and see them kind of indicating the 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 sorrow and the 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 processing happening inside of him. You know, I'm I'm a happy viewer. I could just watch that for forever. Mm-hmm. Um, another uh, strong asset for this film, I would say, is. Isabel Huppert's eyes again like there's they don't get they don't get many scenes together but but when they do I I, I feel like you know it's like oh I can see a, a man of genes like obvious sort of intelligence and everything being drawn to a woman of Isabel's obvious kind of like intelligence and complexity and everything like it just they're just two actors who uh, that makes sense together for me in in that way, right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I imagine these two would have like a like a definitely a complicated relationship, a complicated marriage, and yet uh, one yeah. that they that they would both find like some kind of satisfaction in yeah. those complications, right? Um, like, uh, so I really appreciated that. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, yeah, the scene where the scene. Where uh, so Conrad is playing uh, some military shooter or other, and uh, Jonah uh, Jonah asks some, um, uh, something like that. Don't you think those games are kind of kind of dumb or something like that? Uh, um, Conrad responds, and 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 then Jonah says uh, Jonah says, you know, they're they're a very one sided depiction of American military imperialism or something yeah, like uh-huh. that. And I was like, yes, Jonah, that's like. <laughs> That's a hundred percent correct. They absolutely yes. are, uh-huh. and yet, and yet, Conrad, you know, replies with, "It's very realistic," which is the kind of bullshit line that I think a lot of like, uh, quote unquote, hardcore gamers or people who really enjoy like military shooters might actually say that they that they somehow provide some kind of realistic experience when, you know, if you're talking about like the. Experience I don't know. I, 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 I don't think there's any – I think it's pretty unrealistic any game which you play as somebody who, like, mows down, you know, dozens of enemies, right? That's not really how how conflict right. works most of the time. Um, uh, number four for me was um, the sequence you mentioned of Gene playing Elder Scrolls Online. You know, he just goes through poor guy. You know, he goes I know. through all this work. He has to you have to put in so much time like leveling up the character, developing the character so he can get out into the area where where he can maybe find Conrad and then, you know, he he finds Conrad, he maybe his character does like a little friendly wave and then Conrad just comes <laughs> over and just like slices him down in one hit. And to be clear for anyone listening, like Conrad doesn't know that it's G. Yeah. Like, that's just how Conrad apparently would treat like just about any random right. character who approaches him. So tells you a little something, I guess, about how Conrad's handling things. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, and finally the sequence that I mentioned earlier about um, how framing a photo can change its meaning. I thought that that was uh, a really effective illustration of of something very true and something that's that. We should think about as as uh, you know viewers as uh, consumers of media in terms of you know not just not just still photography but 
like the 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 stories that that we watch, you know, like well, if we're watching a um, you know, like a a, a crime drama, and is the story being framed in such a way to make us to make us more sympathetic or for the for the police, but maybe we don't know the full story of what's going on in mm-hmm. the lives of the other people, you know, for instance, or whatever it is, right? We're always right. every story, pretty you know, pretty much has like inherent kind of biases, mm-hmm. right? That that are that are not like made overt, but are there, and it's good for us to be to be mindful of that um, as yeah, as as viewers and players and readers and fans. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, so my mix of Fab Five and Furious Five, I'm going to cheat because I cheat all the time. So as I said, we recorded this show earlier. Show didn't oh. get recorded, so we're doing it again. I have taken the opportunity to tweak some of my oh. Furious Five. I know, oh. I'm being completely dishonest, but n- no one would have known if I hadn't um, revealed nope. it to you, but I, <laughs> I'm going to cheat, but I'm going to be honest about cheating. So some of them are the same, some are different. Uh, one, <clears throat> Gabriel Byrne, you and I are right here. We are on the same page with the Gabriel Byrne love. Like, I could look at that dude for hours. So there is the the way that he holds his body and communicates just expresses the way he's been completely hollowed out by the grief. Um, and I just was so moved by this. And the, the tiny... Uh, gestures he tries to make to stay connected to his son Conrad like taco night you know it was such a small thing um, but he was just trying so hard and he just had such you could tell he thought that you know he had such paltry tools left available to him um, to to connect so just Gabriel Byrne just love that guy luminous on screen talking about video games I fucking love it when the playing of video games is used as a narrative shorthand, you know, to suggest something about someone because it's always like a first person shooter or something super violent. It's never like, oh, hey, you know, I've been playing Donkey Kong and, you know, just really, you know, processing my shit um, that way. Uh, but somehow it's always just something grim dark. So <laughs> I don't know why I love it, but I absolutely do. Number three on my list, Gabriel Byrne's accent. Couldn't place it, didn't know what it was going to be from scene to scene. Nevertheless, I completely bought into it because, I mean, the dude has, you know, apparently lived in the U.S. for several decades. So I buy the transatlantic mismatch, but, you know, it just was a delightful little thing that tickled me that I didn't know where his (laughs) accent was going to go left or right, and there was really no explanation for it. Whatever. Number four. The naturalistic way in which this was filmed, not completely, because there are uh, fantastical moments uh, in the film, you know, like when Conrad thinks he's able to conjure up wind to move Melanie's hair, right? you know, uh, or things like that. But for the most part, it's done in this very quiet, deliberate, naturalistic way. The lighting, you know, there are times when, you know, a person's face would be half in shadow and you couldn't really see uh, their face in, you know, uh, in its fullness. Uh, sometimes the, the sound was so quiet, it almost felt uh, oppressive because there was no kind of like non-diegetic music behind it. It just felt very real, you know, yeah. in quotation marks. And yeah, we could unpack what that means, but I just, it worked so well for the pacing and the, um, the, the, the feel of this movie 
um, to to not have this kind of like glossy, you know, um, yeah. ultra high def, uh, you know, version agree, of yeah. these people. I, I really appreciated that. Um, <clears throat> and then my my final thing is uh, when Jonah comes back to the family home and he's in his mother's workspace going through like old negatives and slides and, you know, her work, the the way that he and his father uh, move around and touch things really, to me, was such an accurate uh, portrayal of how the physical handling of someone's things can be sometimes you, you pick them up and you don't want to put them back down again um, because it is, is it a ta- it's a tangible connection um, to that person. And so these things, which on their own may not mean much, take on this huge outsized importance for you. And for Jonah, this is certainly the case, right? You know, he considers himself like a steward of his mother's work. He wants to make sure that her work is not being used inappropriately um, or that, you know, messaging is not getting, um, you know, mixed up, that that her retros- that the retrospective of her work is going to accurately convey who she was and, and what she did. Um, but just like the, the, the physical act of touching the things um, that belong to a dead person and how you, you don't want to get rid of them, you know? Yes, I just, I, I just thought it was, it was a really um, moving and, and touching moment for me. So, so yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's where I came down on my, my Furious 5 slash Fab 5 slash Funny 5. Um, <laughs> but now it is time for us, dear listeners, to render our verdicts on this film. We're going to be using my brother Brian's patented, trademarked, copyrighted 100 star scale (laughs) so as you know on each episode we rate the films that we watch Uh, we keep a list of our ratings and a document that you can find in the podcast description so carol start us off here how do you rate louder than bombs so yeah i I mean i i I, it's it's a film in the genre that is like my favorite genre i mean it's got gabriel Byrne. it's got great moments great things it didn't for me come together in such a way ultimately to 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 really kind of be uh, among um like among the, the the best of the genre but i i still really um valued you know watching the film my time with these characters my time getting to watch them you know just feel things and process things and interact with each other uh, so I am giving this film a 70 stars out of 100. Right on, right on. Um, I am grading this movie on a bit of a curve because, as I said, I tend to watch only genre yeah. stuff. Um, yeah. So I'm going to appear smarter than I actually am. Um, so thereby I'm, I'm going to grade this film on a curve um, to suggest that, you know, I'm deeper than I actually am. Um, absolutely. If you're having a smarty party, put on your glasses, serve some scotch, show this movie to your friends. Um, I'm giving this 72 stars. Um, yeah. And I I feel, I feel pretty confident about that, that 72 stars. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a very, that's a It's fair, right? Yeah, it's fair. Yeah, it's absolutely fair. Uh, all right. So, you know, Ebony. um, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. So (laughs) time to tell the good folks at home. Uh, what we're wa- and me ostensibly yeah. what we're watching next week. Let me say this, Carolyn. Yes. After watching It Follows and Louder uh-huh. Than Bombs, two very intelligent films, right? Two yeah, films yeah. that are 
you know, very structured and very careful with the way they are constructed. I absolutely did search for a film that would take us so far out of left field that would be kind of painful to watch in its badness uh-huh, uh-huh. just to kind of mix it up uh-huh. for, the, <laughs> for the people. Yeah. But then I remembered, this is the thing about cinema ball. You don't just like serve the ball into your opponent's court. You have to watch that shit yourself. So I was like, I don't want to <laughs> get caught up watching some garbage either. So yeah. instead, I decided to link cinema ball Via one of my Link. favorite actors. Link. I love Gabriel louder. Byrne, absolutely. Link but louder I, than bombs. Yeah, or excuse me, uh, louder than bombs. I am connecting it via David Strathorn, one of my favorite actors, to mm-hmm. the 1997 film L.A. Confidential. I am <laughs> so excited now, to rewatch this movie and so excited yeah. to talk it over with you. I like the first time because when we recorded this for the first time and I didn't know what was coming, mm-hmm. you said that I let out an exclamation you of sure absolute glee because L.A. Confidential is absolutely one of my all-time favorite films, and I am so so excited to to get into it with you because I think there is so much fascinating stuff oh, going yeah. on in that movie. It's gonna be. It's gonna be. It's gonna be great. Absolutely. Um, I, I, although I feel like I'm not being very strategic because there's so many fucking people in that movie. There are. If you, if you are not, there. if we're not able to wrap up this round within a couple of films after hitting LA I Confidential, know. I will be surprised because yeah. everybody's in that I movie. Mean, yeah, unfortunately, Rob Schneider is not in that film, so that's gonna make it tougher for me to one link to link it one. You know, in one move to knock off, but I'll see what I can do. I'll see what I can do. Uh, All right, everyone. Before before we say goodbye, we want to take a quick moment to mention that everything Feminist Frequency produces, including this very podcast, costs money, and that we cannot do all the things we do without the support of you, our fantastic listeners, readers, viewers, and fans. Throughout the month of May, we are running our annual fundraising drive, and this year we have set a goal of thirty-five thousand dollars to help us keep doing this vital work. Please uh, visit feministfrequency.com slash donate or, you know, share share the uh, fundraising campaign with your friends and help us keep doing our extremely vital, important work and our fun stuff, too, like this ridiculousness, which All I right. like to hope I like to hope this, you know, that our discussions actually do, uh, you know, shed some, you know, have some morsels of thought provoking, insightful stuff that people can take with them into their viewing experiences but yeah absolutely we're having having fun here too my hope is that Uh, if we can get people to just nod at least once during the course of any particular episode as they commute to work and listen to the podcast we have done our jobs (laughs) Uh, so that's going to do it for us this week's folks thanks so much to simplecast which hosts both this podcast and our flagship show feminist frequency radio we will see you back here next week for another round of cinema ball bye everybody see you then (laughs) 